So here we go, here we go, here we go. I'm going to start just reading some stuff that I've been writing. Today's going to be um, very preachy, probably. So a little less teachy, a little more preachy. But um, here's where we go. Um, here's where we're going to go. So the most offensive thing to religion is this phrase, God is love. God is love. Religion lets us get away with the phrase, God loves or God so loved, but when you transition from God loves to God is love, you start having to face the pieces of the first Adam, we've been talking about this lately, that are still present within you. We will never understand God is love while the paradigm that we think through is a cleaned up First, Adam. I'm going to need some help. Who said okay? Was that you? Holly, help, help a brother out. All right. We will never understand God as love if we, let me say it like this, if we think of ourselves as a bunch of sinners saved by grace. You'll never understand God as love. And I say this a lot, you were, you were if, you're, if you're a believer in the room, which I'm, I know everybody in the room, so everybody in the room is a believer. I don't want to assume everybody online. But if you were a sinner saved by grace for about 0.3 seconds, and then after that, you're no longer a sinner. But this is, this is kind of the, the way of thinking that we have around here, and not around here, in the South, is that, well, brother, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, if you're saved, you're not a sinner. Amen. Okay. Awesome. So the question that we must ask ourselves in the West, which we're in the West, if you didn't know that, the question we must ask ourselves in the West is, and this is where we're going, so I just want to take a huge leap. I've been kind of bouncing around this the past few weeks, but I'm going to just get it out there today. If one act, if one act of disobedience by a human which we're talking about a bite of a fruit, by the way. So if one bite of a piece of fruit that they weren't supposed to eat caused, in our normal thinking, every single human being, past, present, and future, to be marked and identified by that disobedience or sin, if that's the case, why do we also believe that the obedience of not just another human, but God himself in Jesus only marks and identifies a handful. Think about this. If, I, if we look at the whole world, we would say every single person on planet earth has been marked by sin. Why do we not also say every single person on planet earth has been marked by what Paul says is a greater obedience, which is grace? Uh-oh, right? This is why this starts to mess with us in the South, because we think if you're not like us and if you're not in our club, then you're nasty and icky and we don't want anything to do with you. But we call the gospel, if you want to come join our club and you want to clean up, then you're in the club. Here's the issue. The gospel is, there's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up coming after me. That's the gospel. 
The gospel is not, I'm going to sit right here and wait for you to come back and believe the truth. I'm going to come find you and tell you this is who you are. Okay. We are more convinced of Adam's defeat than we are of Christ's victory. We're more convinced that people who do bad things are sinners than we are convinced that you and I are saints. Amen. Let me say it like this. If my daughter ran away from home, how would I respond? Would I say, well, if she doesn't accept the truth of what I have to say, she can just stay gone? Or, to quote what I just said about the song, would I light up every shadow, climb up every mountain, knock down every wall, and tear down every lie to go after her? If the answer is the second, which it is, then we have to reckon with the thought that I, a man, would show greater love to my kid than God who is love would show to his, because that's what we have told the world. Have we not, right? That I would show greater love to my daughter if she spit in my face and said, I want nothing to do with you and I'm going to run. You know what I would do? I would get in the car and I would chase after her until she came back home. Yet, we told the world, God is sitting up on his big throne, billion miles in space, waiting for you to make the decision to clean up, and if you don't, sorry for you. So, so we've made evangelism, we've made evangelism, how we're going to reach the world. We've made evangelism, let's have the greatest show in town so that all the people out there will clean themselves up and come be a part of our club. When evangelism was supposed to be us being image bearers, which means now I'm going to operate in the image of Abba and say there's no shadow I won't light up coming after you. Okay, man, I've been feeling this lately, so I don't care if there's one person in here, I'm about to explode. So, instead, instead, we should be the ones, as I just said, lighting up the shadows saying, You don't have to hide or pretend anymore because I know who you are. This is what Yahweh has been setting us up for. Knowing intimately what it means that God is love. What are the implications on the creation if the church transitions from God loves some to God is love itself? I'll I'll tell you the implications. Nations won in their entirety by being enveloped in a love that they were always designed for. This is the implications. If we get God is love, if we get that, when he says, ask of me and I'll give you the nations, we're going to see that. If the people who are lost aren't under a different ownership, but simply have forgotten or strayed from who they are, evangelism has nothing to do with avoiding hell. Rather, it has everything to do with hosting a kingdom here and now. So so let me ask you something. When you got saved, because this is my story, when you got saved, did you get saved to avoid hell? Because I did. 
originally. Here's the com- this is the conversation. If you don't do this and you die in a car wreck tonight, where will you be? Because if you don't repeat this prayer, you'll be in hell. So my response, I, I better repeat this prayer. You know, a million times. Just to be sure, just to be safe. And back when we believed the rapture thing, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> and my parents were doing something outside, and I didn't know they were outside. I've told you this story before. And I'm like, hey, Mom, what we got for lunch? Crickets. I'm like, no, 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 no. Yeah, screaming, like, Mom! You know, nothing. And then I hit the floor. Y'all ain't never seen a prayer service like that. Hit the floor. Lord, come back for just me. I'm sorry. Like, you know what I mean? I missed it. I missed the train. I should have never lied to that person about not having gum when I did. You know, like whatever. And th- see, this is my life, right? The whole, our, my whole Christian experience was I've got to run from punishment. Amen? Let me tell you something. If you go back, I want you, if you go back and read every encounter that Jesus had with what we would call an unbeliever today, I want you to go back and tell me how many of those times he said, if you repeat this prayer, you're going to avoid hell. I'll help you. None. So where do we get that? Well, no. No. So, so, salvation and evangelism has everything to do with hosting a kingdom here and now. This is Jesus' ministry. So we've spent our whole lives, for the most part, running from hell and called it freedom. Freedom is when you get so convinced of the victory of Jesus, hell becomes irrelevant. See, I, just lo- I love just like poking some of this stuff because in the South people hear that and say, Brother, how can you say hell is irrelevant? Well, if I'm saved, it is irrelevant. Is it not? Hell's irrelevant to Jesus. <laughs> all right, all right. And it say it was real. I said it was irrelevant. So I'm not. I'm so I'm not going to. I'm not evangelizing, trying to get people from hell. I'm evangelizing, trying to get people in covenant. That's very different. One of those, I'm saying, hey, come here, so you don't die and punish and be burned. One of these, I'm saying, come here because this is everything you were designed for. That's the difference. That, that transition right there is where the church goes from doing absolutely nothing in the culture to transforming the entire culture, is that transition. Okay. The apostle and beloved John wrote both the gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So the gospel was written first, the book of John was written first, and the most famous verse in it, and really in the whole Bible, is John 3.16. And this is what it says. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Most famous verse. The, the, The word right there, for God so loved. God so loved. That word is describing something, and it's really difficult in the Greek to describe in English, but I'm going to take a stab at it. That word is a word that means you are so something that it naturally flows from you, is what that word means. So in other words, for God so loved that he gave, 
in the Greek is saying, God was so loved that it naturally overflowed into Jesus. Okay, this is what the Greek's saying right here. So you could say it like this. God was in such a state of love, agape, which refers to what God prefers, prefers excuse me, because he is love. Okay, cool. So this is the equivalent of saying God is so identified by his love that it couldn't help but overflow in him giving his only son. It's how you would understand that reading in the Greek. One more, let me just say this one more time. That God is so identified by his love that it couldn't help but overflow in him giving his only son. For God so loved that he gave. God was so loved that it became that which he gave. You with me? Okay. So 1 John 4, which was written later, John expounds upon this that Jesus spoke in John 3 to Nicodemus, and he says this. I'm going to read this. In 1 John 4, 7, and I'm going to read uh, through a few verses. I'm not going to tell you how many. Verse 7. Uh, Those who are loved by God, let his love continually pour from you to one another. Why? Because God is love. Everyone who loves is fathered by God and experiences an intimate knowledge of him. The one who does not love has yet to know God, for God is love. I love that verse. And I don't even know, did you mention that verse last time you taught on love, Matt? I don't, think you, I don't know if you did or not. So, the one who does not love, that's agape, agapeo to be exact. The one who doesn't love doesn't know God because God is love. Whew. That verse, that verse is enough for about 10 years worth of sermons. And it's just like what Matt said that day, that loving your neighbor as yourself and loving God are not two separate commands. They're two of the same, they're two sides of the same coin. You can't love God without loving others, and you can't love others without loving God. Why? Because God is love. You with me? It's not passive love, and that's the thing. As I'm talking through this, here's what I don't mean by love. is what our culture defines as love, which is this. I'm going to pretend like you're not doing anything. I'm going to pretend like you're just, you know, all good. it's all good. Just be you. Your love is your love. That, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not love. Right? That's called me not caring about you. If I'm being honest. I mean, let's just be real. If I look at you and I say, you know, man, man, we just need to love. You know, what do you mean, what do you mean by that? We just need to let people be their own truth. Or whatever. You know, no, 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 no. No, that's not what I'm talking about by love. I'm talking about the God who is love. I'm talking about love that cannot be separated from God, our creator, Yahweh, which means flowing through our veins is love. Because flowing through our veins is image. And God and his image are defined by one thing. When John has the option to describe who God is, I trust what John has to say more than any other New Testament writer because one person laid his head on the chest of Jesus, and that was John. Paul's great. I love all the other ones. But if I'm going to trust one person to say anything, it's going to be John. I mean, that's just my personal belief. But when John has the opportunity to describe God in any word that he wants to use, he doesn't use truth, 
He doesn't use miracles. He doesn't use power. He doesn't use judgment. He doesn't use any of that stuff. He says, here's how we're going to describe it. All of that can be wrapped up in a package that I'm going to call love. And to be more particular, because we only got one word of love in the English, God is agapeo. God is preferential love. So who is God? God prefers. Who does he prefer? Now, this is where it gets real interesting. Because every other deity and every other fake religion is, here's a God who always wants from you. He prefers or she prefers their selves And therefore, you must submit to giving because they prefer to themselves. That's every other religion. What sets Christianity apart, which is why it's the real deal, is that God actually prefers you. For God so loved his creation that he gave of himself so that when you and I believe that he is who he says he is, we no longer have to taste the thing that was caused by Adam in the first bite of the fruit, which is death. This is what the whole book I just wrote is called The Generosity of God. And the whole book is about how God is a giver, not a taker. But, but this, this is it. For God so loved that he gave. So what's John saying? Every, or excuse me, the one who does not prefer others has yet to know God because God prefers others. All right. Let me keep going. Verse 9. The light of God's love shined within us when he sent his matchless son into the world so that we might live through him. This is love. This is love. He loved us. Now, listen to this. I want you to hear this. He loved us long before we loved him. It was his love, not ours. He proved it by sending his son to be the pleasing sacrificial offering to take away our sins. And in the Greek, that word is singular. To take away our sin. Delightfully loved ones, if he loved us with such tremendous love, then loving one another should be our way of life. No one has ever gazed upon the fullness of God's splendor, but if we love one another, God makes... Listen to this. Listen listen to this language and how different it sounds from what we currently believe about everything. If we love one another, God makes his permanent home where? In us. And we make our permanent home in him. And his love is brought to its full expression where? In us. And he has given us his spirit within us so that we can have the assurance that he lives in us and that we live in him. Moreover, I'm going to just read a few more verses. We have seen with our own eyes and can testify to the truth that Father God has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Those who give thanks that Jesus is the Son of God lived in God, or excuse me, live in God, and God lives in them. We have come into an intimate experience with God's love, and we trust in the love he has for us. God is love. Those who are living in love are living in God, and God lives through them. By living in God, love has been brought to its full expression in us so that we may fearlessly face the day of judgment. Check this out. Because all that Jesus is now 
so are we in this world. Just for the fun of it, one more time. All that Jesus is now, so are we, not in heaven, now, in this world. Love never brings fear, for fear is always related to punishment. What is it saying? Love never brings fear, for fear is always related to punishment. If we are in love, there's no reason to fear. Why? Because there's no punishment awaiting us. But love's perfection drives the fear of punishment far from our hearts. Last couple. Whoever walks constantly afraid of punishment has not reached love's perfection. Our love for others is our grateful response to the love God first demonstrated in us. Last two verses. Anyone can say, I love God, yet have hatred toward another believer. (laughs) Oh, man. So, 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 so much. Anyone can, anyone can say, I love God, yet have hatred toward another believer. Hello, denominations. This makes, this makes him a phony. Because if you don't love a brother or sister whom you can see, how can you love God whom you cannot see? For he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also demonstrate love to others. Whew. Does verse, let me just, does verse 9 sound familiar? Let me just read one more time. Tell me if this sounds familiar. I just read John 3.16. I'm giving all this away. Listen to verse 9. The light of God's love shined within us when he sent his matchless son into the world so that we might live in him or through him. Does that sound familiar? John 3.16, it sounds almost identical to John 3.16. So John is expounding on this idea of John 3.16. What is he doing? He's growing this idea that Jesus was a result. This is a huge shift, so I need you to hear this. Jesus was a result not of man's actions, even in disobedience but an overflow of the nature of God that he could not help but lavish on us. Jesus' incarnation was a result of God who is so loved that he gave, the Greek word that I mentioned earlier, didomi, didomi, and it means to give of oneself, or it could be translated to pour. So God is so loved that he poured his only son on us. We see Jesus as God's response to our sin. Jesus was actually God's response to his identity of love that also took care of our sin. That's a, big, that's a huge shift. Totally biblical, totally not Western. That God's response, and I'm about to prove it to you, God's response was not Man, these guys are really jacked this up. Which one of y'all want to go fix it? It fixed it. But this is God's... This is, I so love my creation, I'm going to pour myself out on them. 
in the process, I'm going to take care of their sins. But I'm going to do way more than take care of their sins. I'm going to take care of their sins so that we can be back in the let us make man in our image and likeness and blow into Adam and they're walking in the cool of the day again. I'm not just going to take care of their sins. I'm going to thrust them back into a garden. This is what? For God so loved the world. Every time you read this, I want you to think of this. For God so loved the world that he poured his only son. You hear that overflow? Let me prove this. Revelation 13.8 says this, that Jesus was the lamb slain from the beginning of the cosmos. Ever think about this? Jesus was the lamb that was slain from the foundation or the beginning of the cosmos, of the creation. The world, your Bible might say. So God had Jesus in mind before sin ever entered the picture. Do, you, do y'all see this? This is really good news for me. It might be bad news for you. I don't know. But God had Jesus in mind before sin ever entered the picture. You could say this is foresight, or you could say that God is so essenced with love that it began to pour out on us through a man named Jesus. The Israelites did not deserve to be God's people in the Old Testament. They did nothing to deserve it. Nothing. Yet, God needed a group of people to pour out his nature on and chose Israel to do it. Do you see this? Why did he choose Abraham? Abraham came from an environment where they would worship other gods. And the Lord happens to pick out Abraham, Abram at the time, pull him up and say, you know what, Abram? I'm going to make your descendants like the stars in the sky, sand on the beach. I'm going to pour out myself. They're going to be my bride and they're going to be my people and I'm going to be their exclusive God. Why? No reason. Abram did absolutely nothing. So what was God looking for? Was he looking for a group of people that he could punish because he had anger on his mind? Because this is how we view God. Or was he looking for a group of people to pour himself out on in love? And time after time after time after time, they fall, they turn to other gods, they build a bunch of golden cows. We still don't know why. Um, I'm just kidding. There is some theological or historical reasons, but I like to make a joke out of it. But anyway, they build golden calves. They build all this other stuff. They lose their ever-loving minds. They come into the land of Canaan that is just given to them. They did nothing to deserve it. They come into this land, and the next generation forgets who God is. Not Listen. They didn't just come into service and repeat a prayer. They saw the Red Sea divide and them walk across on dry land. I would dare say if all of us in this room watched Lake Murray or whatever part and us walk across on dry land, let me tell you what we're never going to forget. That. You know what I'm saying? And yet, you fast forward a couple of generations, they're worshiping Baal. <laughs> right? So we like to make a joke out of it. We, that's what we do. A, a, lot of, a lot of the Christianity stuff that we worship today, we, we've made up. This Cessationism, for example, completely made up. 
completely fabricated, that God is 10 billion miles out there, doesn't care, doesn't want to talk, doesn't want to do anything, but thank the Lord he gave us a book. That is the popular belief today. Has no biblical understanding, has nothing, but this is what we do, right? So we build up these idols because what we don't want is we don't want to face the God who we think is going to punish us that actually wants to lavish his love on us We don't want to face that because we have the idea of God in our minds that he's ready to strike us at any moment. And because we have that idea, rather than facing that, we build religion that says, God doesn't even want to face me, period. So what the Lord is bringing us into is he's bringing us into a place where we understand his nature as a lover so that we can actually begin to gaze into his eyes again and see who we really are. And in the process of doing that, we're going to go find all the lost ones that religion has completely rejected and say, I know who you are. Come find a man who has told me everything that I've ever done. The Israelites, the Israel, I got to fix this thing in my uh, shirt. So y'all, excuse me just one second. Got a little too feisty there. Um, if it's going to, it might not do it. But anyway, um, I got bit by a million mosquitoes yesterday, so a little, little raw. All right. So we, so we mu- and I'm going to go to Luke 15. We must transition from an Adam consciousness, even if it's cleaned up, to a Jesus-only consciousness. Nothing, nothing, nothing I'm saying right now is, is, is brand new. This is all orthodox. I just read you a whole chapter in the Bible that said it. Okay? Nothing what I'm saying. It might be new to our thinking, but we need that. Okay? Y'all with me? So Luke 15. Here we go. Luke 15. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we're done. (laughs) Um, Happy Mother's Day. Um, See, if we wait a little bit longer, there won't be any lines at the restaurants either. So, Um, All right, here we go. Luke 15. You ready? Now, all right, man, I'm not going to give anything away. I'm not going to give anything away. Many, I mean, listen to how this starts, okay? Many dishonest tax collectors and other notorious sinners often gathered around to listen as Jesus taught the people. That, I read that verse this week and convicted me to the core. How many sinners are coming to this church gathering around saying, I want to hear what that guy's got to say? Not a lot. So I'm doing something wrong. I mean, you know what I'm saying? But this is Jesus. The notorious sinners often gathered around to listen as Jesus taught the people. And of course, this raised concerns with the Jewish religious leaders and experts in the law. Indignant, they grumbled and complained, saying, Look at how this man associates with all these notorious sinners and welcomes them all to come to him. I want that to be my testimony. I mean, don't you? I want all the religious people in Columbia to say, man, look at that guy. Look at all those nasty people coming in. That's what I want. I want that to be my story. So I don't know how we're going to get there. It might mean we got to move this out sometimes, but that's what I want. Um, In response, in response to that, now remember, who are these people? Sinners. We just read this, okay? So in response to this, Jesus gave them, he's about to give them three parables. Now, as I read this, I want you to just think through this as I'm reading this. 
how many of the quote-unquote lost in these parables have changed ownership? Who owns them? Okay? As I read this, I want you to think through that. There was once a shepherd with a hundred lambs, but one of his lambs wandered away and was lost. So the shepherd left the 99 lambs out in the open field and searched in the wilderness for that one lost lamb. He did not stop until he found it. With exuberant joy, he raised it up and placed it on his shoulders, carrying it back with cheerful delight. Returning home, he called all his friends and neighbors together and said, Let's have a party. Come and celebrate with me the return of my lost lamb. It wandered away, but I found it and brought it home. Jesus continued. In the same way, there will be a glorious celebration in heaven over the rescue of one lost sinner who repents and comes back home and returns to the fold. One more time. And returns to the fold. More so than for all the righteous people who never strayed away. Verse 8, Jesus gave them another parable. Now, he's about to give a parable that, that he's using a woman in place for God. And he's just doing this for the sake of the parable. That alone would have made the religious people so furious. So here's what he says. And I, he, I think he's doing this just to give a little jab. I can relate. There once was a woman who had ten valuable coins. When she lost one of them... When she swept her entire house, diligently searching every corner of her house for that one lost coin. When she finally found it, she gathered her friends and neighbors for a celebration, telling them, Come celebrate with me. I had lost my precious coin, but now I have found it. That's the way God responds every time one lost sinner repents and turns to him. He says to all his angels, let's have a joyous celebration for that one who was lost I have found. We're not going to see this word in the next story, so let me just, just break this down real quick. The word repent, I've taught on this a lot, but I've done like a, a little deeper study in this word. And it means, it has two meanings, metanoia, metanoia. It has two meanings. It means on a surface level to turn and go the other direction. Really what it means is to change how you think, okay? But if you go even deeper into studying the context of this word metanoia, the word meta means together with, together with or beyond, it could mean. And... um. And let me make sure, I'm reading this out of my Bible. Let me, um, yeah, okay, I did actually write it down. So meta means together with or beyond or after. Could mean any of those. Noia, the second part of that word, check this out, means to perceive with the mind. It describes the awakening of one's mind to that which is true. Or a realignment of one's reasoning. Could also mean a gathering of one's thoughts or a co-knowing. So faith, for example, is not 
a decision, but a discovery. So the verse, verse 10 should be, if you're reading this in the, in the Greek, when you get this metanoia broken down, should read like this. That's the way, after finding this coin, that God responds every time one lost sinner rediscovers their value and identity and returns to him. Okay. So let me keep reading. My, one of my favorite stories of all time. Parable. Then Jesus said, There was a father with two sons. The younger son came to his father and said, Father, don't you think it's time to give me the share of your estate that belongs to me? So the father went ahead and distributed among the two sons their inheritance. Shortly afterward, the younger son packed up all his belongings and traveled off to see the world. He journeyed to a far-off land where he soon wasted all that he was given in a binge of extravagant and reckless living. That sounds like some people I know. Right? It sounds like me if you, you know, went on a few years ago, a decade ago. With everything spent and nothing left, he grew hungry, for there was a severe famine in the land. So he begged a farmer in that country to hire him. The farmer hired him and sent him out to feed the pigs. The son was so famished, he was willing to even eat the slop given to the pigs because no one would feed him a thing. Lord, there's so much right here. Humiliated, the son finally realized. Here's that word, repentance. This is, this is where it happens. Humiliated, the son finally realized what he was doing. He comes to his senses and he thought, there are many workers at my father's house who have all the food they want with plenty to spare. They lack nothing. Why am I here dying of hunger, feeding these pigs and eating their slop? I want to go back home to my father's house and I'll say to him, Father, I was wrong. I have sinned against you. I'll never be worthy to be called your son. Please, Father, just treat me like one of your slaves or employees. How, this is my salvation prayer. Father, I'm wrong. I've sinned. I'll never be worthy to be called your son. Please just treat me like a slave. So the young son set off for home. From a long distance, his father saw him coming. Dressed as a beggar. And great compassion swelled up in his heart for his son who was returning home. So the father raced out to meet him. He swept him up in his arms, hugged him dearly, and kissed him over and over with tender love. Then the son said, Now this is really in the Aramaic. Most of your Bibles won't have it like this. But I'm just going to read it like this for the sake of the story. Then the son said, Father, I was wrong. I have sinned against you. I could never be deserve, or excuse me, I could never deserve to be called your son. Let me be. And the father interrupted and said, Son, you're home. I can never deserve to be called your son. 
And the first thing the father calls him is son. Turning to his servants, remember, he had just wasted everything he was given. He said, quick, bring me the best robe, my very own robe, and I will place it on his shoulders. Bring the ring, the seal of sonship, and I will put it on his finger. Bring the best shoes you can find for my son. Let's prepare a great feast and celebrate For this beloved son of mine was once dead, now he's alive again. He was once lost, and now he is found. And everyone celebrated with overflowing joy. Now don't forget, Jesus is sitting around with all these nasty, awful, notorious sinners while all the religious elite are standing there questioning him hanging out with all these people and he's sharing this story in front of all of them. Now the older son was out working in the field when his brother returned. And as he approached the house, he heard the music of celebration and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked, what's going on? Religion hates the music of celebration and dancing. The servant replied, it's your younger brother. He's returned home and your father is throwing a party to celebrate his homecoming. But the older son got angry and refused to go in and celebrate. So the father came out and pleaded with him. I'm almost done. Come and celebrate, or excuse me, come in and enjoy the feast with us. Then the son said, Father, listen, how many years have I been working like a slave for you? Performing. That's the key word. I have that circled many times in my Bible. How many times have I been working like a slave for you, performing every duty you've asked as a faithful son? I've never once disobeyed you. But you've never thrown a party for me because of my faithfulness. Never once have you even given me a goat that I could feast on and celebrate with my friends like he's doing now. But look at this son of yours. He comes back after wasting your wealth on prostitutes and reckless living. And here you are throwing a great feast to celebrate for him. The father said, my son... You are always with me and by my side. Everything I have is yours to enjoy. It's only right to celebrate like this and be overjoyed because this younger brother of yours was once dead and gone, but now he is alive and back with us again. He was lost and now he is found. And if you keep going into chapter 16, Jesus kind of goes deeper with the disciples, but I'm not going to do that today. Let me drink this. The lost sheep was one out of a hundred. The lost coin was one out of ten. And the lost son was one out of two. The lost ones, quote unquote, that religion had rejected were drawn to Jesus and his teaching. Religion likes to build country clubs for the ones who repeated prayers and got their membership card. Jesus lights up every shadow and kicks down every wall until all his misplaced family comes home. Jesus gave these three parables in response to the religious leaders who were angry and complaining that Jesus associated with sinners. To see these parables correctly, let me point out a couple of things. Lost, and I said this earlier, hopefully you thought through this. In all of these stories has nothing to do with ownership. 
In the story of the lost sheep, it was the shepherd's sheep that ran off that he went and found. When it was lost and when it was found, it was the shepherd's sheep. Right? We just read it. The lost coin never changed ownership. The lost son never lost sonship. Luke 19, what does Luke 19.10 say? It says, The Son of Man has come to seek and recover that which was lost. You know that verse? Okay. Luke 19.10, The Son of Man has come to seek and save or recover that which was lost. That verse does not say that who was lost, but that which was lost. What is that? What is he coming to to recover? He's coming to recover pre-fallen identity. Really, he's coming to recover the image. When Jesus says, The Son of Man has come to seek and recover that which was lost. He's saying, I have come to get my image back that was forfeited so that I can give it back to my family again. Lost deals with misplacement or being out of alignment. So likewise, repentance, as I just read, in verse 10, has nothing in common with the Latin word penitia that carries the idea of penance, which is self-punishment as an outward response to sin, or in the English, repentance. So Latin, and I know this because I took Latin in high school, um, Latin is kind of the bridge between Greek and English. So by the time words have transitioned from Greek into Latin and then into English, we lose a lot of their meaning, and repentance is one of those words. When repentance, metanoia, leaves Greek, it enters into the Latin language as um, the word penitia. Penitia, that's the word in Latin. In Latin, that word means penance, and it means repentance. Those two things. Both of those, both of those in Latin carry the meaning of self-punishment as an outward response to sin. In other words, when you sin, penitia comes in so that you can be punished for your sin and be made right. So it transitions from Latin into English where we hear the word repentance when I tell you we need to repent. Typically, what you process is, I've got to do something to earn my way back. Right? But in Greek, as I just mentioned earlier, in Greek, metanoia is not earning your way back. It's remembering who you are. Drastic difference. What does Jeremiah say? I'm jumping way ahead. I'm almost done. Jeremiah says this, okay? And I've mentioned this a few weeks. Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I intimately knew you. He tells Jeremiah this. Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I intimately knew you. John 1.29, John says, the Baptist, the baptizer, not the Baptist like the denomination Baptist, John the baptizer says this, There's the Lamb who takes away the sin, plural, or singular, of the world. 
There's the Lamb who's come to take away the sin of the world. Not sins, the sin. He didn't come as a response to every time you mess up saying forgive, 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 forgive. Though He does. But the reason He forgives is because He actually took care of the sin. So what is He doing? Here comes the Lamb that's going to remove the stain of the bite of fruit that came from Adam. Do you see this? The implications of this are, are unreal. So this is what he says. He gives a parable of three things that were lost that he searches out or chases after when he sees them coming to find them. Okay? So what identifies someone who was lost? Like when I was lost, what identified me? I mean, okay, how far do we want to go? It's just a handful today, so that's okay. What identifies someone who is lost? Are you ready? I'm going to argue it cannot be their sin alone. Because you and I still sin. Right? Anybody in this room perfect? No, I'm not. I'm sure not. Okay? You should have saw my anger when our air conditioning decided it might want to break soon the other day. <laughs> right? I'm, I'm sure not perfect. But if that's the case, if you and I sin, yet it doesn't affect our identity, we, we have to ask the question why sin can affect the identity of other people. If it's sin that identifies someone who is lost, what do you do with verses like this? Romans 5.8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Colossians 2. Let me just, just for the fun, real, real quick, real quick. Colossians 2. Here's what Colossians 2 says. You ready? This isn't exclusive. This is totality. Colossians 2 says, uh, In the same way you've re received the Messiah by faith, I read this a couple of weeks ago, to continue your journey of faith, progressing for, uh, further into your union with Him. Your roots go deep, blah, blah, blah. He is the complete fullness of deity in human form. But this is what Jesus says. In Colossians 2, 13 through 15, He says it like this. <clears throat> this realm of death describes our former state. For we were once held in sin's grasp, but now we've been resurrected out of that realm, never to return for who we are forever, alive and forgiven of all of our sins. So he canceled every legal violation we had on our record and the old arrest warrant that stood to indict us. He erased it all. Our sins, our stained souls, he deleted it all and they cannot be retrieved. Everything we once were in Adam has been placed on the cross and nailed permanently there as a public display of cancellation. Then Jesus made a public spectacle of all the powers and principalities of darkness. Listen to this. Stripping away from them every weapon and all their spiritual authority and power to accuse us. Jesus led them around as prisoners in a procession of triumph. He was not their prisoner. They were his. So that's what Colossians says. 
If he stripped them of authority. What is authority? I taught on this a few weeks ago. Some of you might remember this. Most of you probably don't. So, authority is authorship. The word author means I own. So I'm authoring a book right now, which means I own the right to that book because I authored it. I am in the authority of that book. Right? Authorship, authority. Ownership. So if he stripped the powers of darkness of all of their authority, that means they can no longer be author. And if they can no longer be author, they can no longer be owner. Y'all good? We're almost done. So Jesus destroyed forever the power of sin. Sin is incapable of identifying anything or we have to rip out everything I just read. Religion wants the Bible to say that the devil still runs the world, but then is forced to confront things like Matthew 28, 18, which says, all authority or ownership in the universe has been given to me. We want the Bible to say, the devil has all the authority in the earth and we are fighting him tooth and nail. One problem, this is what the Bible actually says. All authority has been given to me, Jesus, in the universe. So if every ounce of authority in the universe has been placed on Jesus, how much authority is there to give to someone else or something else? None. If I don't have authority, I don't have the power to own We existed, according to Jeremiah 1.5, in Christ before our mother's womb. Which means we originated not in the nasty world, but we actually originated in Him. Well, brother, how are you going to prove that one? Here we go. This is what Ephesians says. Ephesians says, He chose us before the foundations of the world. In love. Are y'all with me? This is what Second Peter. This is what Second Peter says about the end, about Jesus coming. Here's what Second Peter says. Let me just just read this real quick. I'm on, I'm, I'm on the last page. Y'all good? I, <laughs> come on, Brandon. Brando. So, Second Peter three eight. Here's what this says. Okay, dear friends. Don't let this one thing escape your notice. A single day counts like a thousand years to the Lord. A thousand years counts as a day. This means that contrary to man's perspective, the Lord is not late with his promise to return as some measure lateness. Talking about the return of Jesus. But rather, his delay simply reveals his loving patience toward you. Why? He does not want any to perish, but all to come to what? Repentance. I could, I could throw this pen 10 miles right now. Are y'all ready? I feel this all over me. Let me just roll it. He does not want... How, this is the gospel. Where, where did we forget this? He does not want any to perish, but all to come to their senses and remember that before their mother's womb, they were alive in Him. 
We did not originate in sin. We originated in him until you and I made the conscious choice to choose sin. But even when we made that choice, and even when we were lost, the ownership of our DNA never changed. So when he's coming to seek and save that which is lost, he's coming to find the DNA alive in every human being that says, you are my son, you are my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. Let me tell you who you really are. That is the gospel. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. Why? Not because I've done anything to deserve it. I'm hiding in a shadow. But because your love for me is so great in your nature and so alive in your nature that it pours out into I will get my son if I've got to turn over every couch, if I've got to turn over every single piece of furniture in the house, I'm going to find my lost coin even though I've got nine others. He had 99 sheep in this parable, 99 other ones, and he left them all out in the field vulnerable because he refused to let one go. That is the gospel. The son comes home. The son comes home and says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Matt, come up here. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me a slave. And he says, no, 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 no. Let me tell you who you are. Now, let me be clear. The son hasn't even said sorry yet. Do you hear me? If I can find it in my Bible again. The son, father, I was wrong. That's about as close as you get to a sorry. I was wrong. I've sinned against you. I'm not deserving to be called your son. I don't deserve to be called your son. And he says, son, you're home now. I heard Damon Thompson say this last week. And he said, he was talking about, he was in Bourbon Street, and he actually ended up catching COVID from Bourbon Street. So anyway, New Orleans. But um, he's good now. But he said, uh, talking to them, and I thought about this. How many people, if you've been at Soda City, you've probably seen this, um, because there's people out there that do this. How many people have walked through so let's just use Soda City. Walk through Soda City, which you don't know what that is. It's just a farmer's market. So walk through with a megaphone saying something like, turn or burn, or, you know, quit doing this, or you're going to burn, or, or, you know, whatever. I mean, like, how many people, we, we've done that. We've, we've done that. We've seen the movie. We've gotten the copyrights. We've done the whole thing. But I wonder, and maybe this has happened, and I just don't know about it. How many people have walked down Soda City and just said, God is love. God is Abba, and he's coming after you. God is Papa, and he's going to light up every single shadow in Columbia until he gets you home. If I was told that as a kid, I would have not spent years and years and years and years of my life afraid of his wrath. 
God's judgment is a great thing for believers. Have you ever read the book of Judges? God as a judge is an amazing thing. God's wrath is an amazing thing for believers. I think that the best thing that the enemy has been able to do, the best thing is to get us to believe that we aren't worth this because we are still connected to the bite of the fruit. We're not worth this. So we're going to spend our whole lives working to earn this. Here's the issue. If you lived perfectly, you could not earn this. You don't get to this by way of your works. You get to this by remembering who you were before you were in your mother's womb. When the early fathers were coming up with an idea of how to describe the Trinity, they used the word perichoresis. When the early church father, fathers were thinking of how, to descri- how do we describe this, this Trinity idea, and they came up with the word perichoresis. Peri, which means circle. Choresis is where we get choreography, dance. So when describing the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, the best thing they could come up with to describe it is a dance. So in Genesis, when God says, let us make man in our image, what he's saying is, is this love can no longer be contained in just this spin. And so out of that spin spun Adam. And out of that spin spun Eve. And out of that spin spun you and I. What our job is as sons and daughters of God, our job is to make sure that we do not make salvation about how we can be good enough. Our job is to make sure we make salvation about climbing our way back into the dance. And as we go, we're passing people and saying, you were made for this dance too. Why don't you come dance along with us? And the spin becomes so contagious that every single person in our lives is drawn into the spin because they know who they are. There's something within every... In fact, it says this, that eternity is in the heart of every man. There's something in the heart of every single person in humanity that knows they were born for this. The only missing piece is you and I being so convinced of this that it dares them that everything they've ever known on the inside but had no language for is found in the eyes of Abba. We watch uh, Frozen 2 (laughs) a lot. Y'all like Frozen 2? This is the best movie ever. It's so good. Um, But this is how I want to end this. This is how I want to end this. Jordan, don't laugh. So, uh, I think through I think about things through Disney princesses now because that's all we watch. <laughs> Number one, 
the most prophetic songs you have ever heard have come from some of these Disney princess movies. I mean, Mulan, when will my reflection show who I am inside? You know what I'm saying? Uh, What's the uh, Aladdin? A whole new world, a brand new dazzling point of view. No one to tell us no or where to go. Or say we're only dreaming. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay. So, in this movie, um, why am I crying? In this movie, the whole movie. So, I'm going to spoil something for you. And then you're going to have to go home and watch this. If you've seen the movie, you didn't catch this. I promise you, you didn't catch it. So in the movie, and if you were here this morning, don't say anything, Julia. But this, uh, in the movie, there's this voice, and only she, Elsa, only she can hear it, okay? There's this voice. Only she can hear it. No one else can hear it. But she, she's fascinated by it. She's drawn to this voice. And she knows that it's calling her somewhere. She doesn't know where. She just knows she was made to follow the voice. She keeps hearing it. So through the whole movie, the whole movie is about her discovering this voice. It's just finding it. But in the whole movie, in all the musical, like, soundtracks, songs, that she is singing, she, she sings the same notes as this voice that she's been hearing, but every single time she's singing them at a lower pitch. Go back. If you go back and listen to this, you'll hear this. It's, it is, I cry every time because it's brilliant. But this voice is singing up here, and this whole time she's flowing with it in the same notes, but it's not quite the same as the voice. So in other words, she knows that she's made for this. The frequency is very similar and on the same page, but it hasn't 100% lined up. And the whole movie, she's trying to find this voice. She finds it. She finds the voice. And it's her mom this whole time. Really cool thing. And at the end of the song, the mom says, you, ah. she says, you are the one that you've been looking for your whole life. And at the, uh, at the end of the song, she finally sings in tune and in pitch the same notes as the voice. And it's the way that the music creators wrote the song to say she's finally found who she is. If you go back and listen to the movie, brilliant. Here's why that I'm crying. My whole life, my whole life, I knew I was made for something but could not figure out what it was. My entire life, I knew I was made for a voice that I was hearing, but I could not find out what it was. And all my days were spent searching to try to find the frequency that was alive in me that no one else understood until I found out what the voice was. And it was Abba saying, 
your whole life you were working and trying to be someone because you thought that was how you lined up with the frequency of what you were hearing. And your whole life, what you were actually searching for was you being you that I knit together in your mother's womb. And in by, by being you, you're going to start to line up with the frequency that's been alive in you this whole time. That is the gospel. So what you and I are called to do is we're called to be the one saying, the voice that's alive in you is here and his name is Jesus. That's what we're called to do. What is our world? What, I mean, think about this. Think about this. What is our world screaming for right now? Love. I saw a sign. It's on Main Street in one of the businesses. I'm almost done. I promise. But this is just too much fun. I, I saw a sign on Main Street, and it was a sign. I mean, I, I don't, I'm, I'm sure I don't know what they believe. But anyway, and the sign says um, something to the effect of, you know, black people are worthy of love. Asian people are worthy of love. Gay people are worthy of love. You know, and it just kind of went down the list. And, um, and I walked past this, and I thought for a minute. I wonder how many Christians have walked past this sign and rolled their eyes. Lord, here we go. You know what I'm saying? And when I looked at that, the Lord stopped me for a minute and it said, they are crying out for this. Creation is crying out. We need love. We want love. Where is it? They're hearing the voice. They know what they were made for. They're hearing the voice. And yet religion, the ones that are supposed to be pointing people to the voice, have instead said, we don't want you. We're going to back away. And in that gap, the world has come in and tried to define a love it cannot define. And this is where you have people searching out all these different lifestyles, all these different types of love, because there is chaos where we should be stepping into and saying, you're looking for love. God is love. But, but there's a gap. There's a gap that we have never filled. And this is the gap that Jesus found himself in. All the notorious sinners, the people that religion said we don't want, all of those people somehow found home around Jesus, who was fully God, who was who religion was teaching every week. Right? All the, all the religious scholars. Scholars of what? God. Yet when God was in their presence, all the ones that the scholars of God had rejected found home within God. This is what's happening today. Is that all down the streets of Columbia, if you ask anybody, are you a Christian? 99.9% .9 of the time, they're going to say yes. You know why they're not in church? Because we don't want that type of people. We, we don't want those type of people. I want our church to be filled with those that every other church has rejected. That's why you and I, a lot of us, that's why we're here. It's because religion wanted nothing to do with the voice that was alive inside of me. Is it, are y'all getting, are y'all feeling this? 
And so I just, I was praying about how to end this because this is a lot. We have a lot of people in the world that are absolutely lost, right? I mean, it's no, we have family members that are lost. But when we see them as identified by their sin, we're really easily able to make the disconnect between them being actually made in the image of God. If uh, Let me use... Uh, Homosexuality. Let me just use that. So homosexuality. There's a gay person right here. Pretend. If I, if I see them as identified by their actions in homosexuality, I can very easily say that's, that doesn't line up with what we believe and break the relationship or cut off that you know encounter. You see what I'm saying? If they're solely identified by their sin, it's really easy for me to stay at arm's length from them because I'm running from sin. But if I see them as made in the same image as I was made in, then I can start to have the capability of taking their sin and putting it here and seeing them for who they really are and saying, this is who you were designed to be. Is that not what Jesus did? The woman at the well. The woman at the well. He comes and sits down with this woman. She was a Samaritan. So Jews did not talk to them. They were nasty. They were icky. They didn't want anything to do with them. But Jesus sat down with her. And he looks at her and he does not say, man, it really stinks. You're going to go to hell. You know what I'm saying? Man, that really stinks. You must be a Democrat. You know, uh, you know he, didn't, he didn't say any of that. Just a joke. He, he said, if you'll drink of me, you'll never be thirsty again. And she's saying, what are you talking about? We'll figure, it, we'll figure everything out when the Messiah comes. And he says, I am. I am the Messiah. And then here's what he says. He says, go get your husbands. So in this moment, he's separating who she is and the fact that she's been sleeping around. Go get your husbands. She says, I don't have any husbands. And he's like, you're right. There's a lot of people you've been with. This one right now isn't your husband. But he's not saying that because this is how we process this. He's not saying that to say, I, see there, I know what you've done. He's saying, oh, man, I'm, I'm about to lose it. He's saying all the stuff that you've had to hide from everybody else you can unveil in front of me. That's what he's saying, which is exactly why she runs back into the city and says, come see a man who has told me everything I've ever done. Enjoy. She's not saying, good Lord, this guy knows everything I've ever done. She's saying, finally, I've spent my whole life covering up what I've done. I don't have to do that anymore because it was uncovered in front of him. And he said, if you'll lay this down, I'll be your bridegroom. If you'll drink of me, you'll never thirst again for somebody else's love that isn't even worth what you have to offer. Do you see this? I mean, how many of us have sat down and said, not, see, man, if you just lay, if you just lay down all that, then maybe you'd be good enough to come to church or whatever. No, 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 no. How many of us have sat down with people and said, you don't have to hide? I know who you are. You don't have to hide. 
Everybody else has rejected you, but I'm here to make sure you know who you were designed to be, which is the image and likeness of Yahweh. And then guess what starts to take care of itself? Sin. 